If not, um, you can lift up your hand. We'll get you uh, one. Uh, we also have uh, much of the scriptures on our, uh, on our display up here. So, uh, But we're in Galatians 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 21 today. Man, I got to listen to Jeremy's teaching from this last Sunday, and I had to text him during the week and just give God glory of how he was used, and uh, I feel like um, a description of last Sunday's message was, was almost like a thesis of grace. Uh, that was just the word that I used uh, to Jeremy as I was encouraging him. Man, that was a powerful thesis of grace, of God's grace, and so we're going to kind of just pull the text apart uh, today and, and uh, let it minister to us afresh again a uh, second time, and uh, we'll go ahead and stand together and read it together. Uh, I'll read it. You can follow along. And it says, Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face, because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with them, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I through the law died to the law, that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Hey, Daniel, would you come on up here, buddy? Going to have Daniel pray over our time in the Word today. Daniel Tomes, visiting from Corvallis. He was a surprise visit today. He was one of my high school students uh, when I was a youth pastor in Corvallis. Um, and uh, awesome missionary friend. We've been to Brazil together. You know Galatians. In fact, I went through Galatians in Brazil, in Curitiba, if you remember that. Will you pray over us in our text today? I'd love to. Awesome. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you that you send your spirit to speak to us, and, um, and Lord, as we're in this, this passage on grace, God, your grace is so sweet, and uh, sometimes these truths of your gospel, these central truths, we can just become callous to them, and they can just become old, and Lord, I ask that you just tear away as any calluses that are on our hearts, Lord, or any hardness that we have in that these truths would just become just fresh to us as, as Rory reveals these things and as you send your spirit to um, just speak to our hearts, I ask that they would, uh, they would just penetrate our hearts and that um, 
that you'd bring our gaze back to Christ. Thank you for your son. Thank you for your grace. I ask it just become sweet to us afresh this morning. In your name, amen. Amen. Thanks, my brother. Good to have you. Love you. You guys can go ahead and be seated. In Galatians 2, 11 through 21, I've titled our message this morning, I do not set aside the grace of God. I do not set aside the grace of God. Here in this confrontation of Paul to Peter, we have the truth of the gospel being at stake. Paul will deal face on, head on, with what he calls spiritual espionage. As earlier on in the chapter, he says that spies are sent forth into the church so that they can spy out our freedom in Christ and then lead us into bondage. He deals with those spies face on in Galatians chapter 2 as he gives one of the only accounts that we have. We don't have it in the book of Acts. We have it in a letter from Paul of this uh, confrontation of one of the church fathers, a confrontation from a father to a father, from Paul to Peter, as he sees a danger zone being entered into, the truth of the gospel being at stake. And it starts out by saying in verse 11, now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. He was guilty about something. He wasn't innocent about something. And once again, we live in a culture of of tolerance. And yet tolerance that goes so far that it's willing to compromise. And that if anyone is, is confronting somebody regarding the truths of matters or the purity of matters or the holiness of matters, they are they are called judgmental. They're called legalists. Uh, they're, they're accused of being judgy. And yet we see Paul stepping outside of a comfort zone into an awkward situation. As a young church leader, he confronts an older church leader right into his face in a public setting because he had done something wrong, something that was wrong. He was to be blamed. He was guilty in in this situation. And here's what the situation was. In verse 12, certain men had come from James... And what were those men doing? It it said earlier on that uh, they were spying out freedom. If you go back to verse 4, false brethren, and the Greek is pseudo-adelpho. False brethren, pseudo-brethren. You guys recognize that name, pseudo. They were secretly brought in, coming in by stealth to spy and espionage and kind of Cold War communist type cameras hidden in your watch or whatnot, you know, taking little pictures to show, look at the freedom that they've got. Look how far they've gone from the law of Moses. It's just like they're out of control up there in Antioch. I was reminded of a book that I read recently called 12 Years a Slave. It's the story of Solomon Northrup who was a free black man in New York in the 1840s. He was a successful man. His grandfather had been a liberated slave, and he was a successful businessman in New York. And his 
father was a successful businessman, and Solomon himself was a successful businessman and a very gifted musician. He played the violin beautifully and was often hired to play at very uh, ornate and fancy events. And uh, one day, a couple of men came into town, professional-looking men who who had heard of Solomon's skill, they said. And so they told Solomon, hey, we are, uh, we are with the circus who's going to be traveling through the area, and we are in need of musicians and performers, and we are wondering if you would bring your violin and play for the circus. We'll, we will reward you handsomely. You'll be paid. It'll be something that will uh, bring even more success to your, uh, to your life here in New York. And so Solomon happened to be that his family was out of town when he decided to take on this extra job and nobody else knew about it. And as he began traveling with this group of men, they, uh, they gave him a steak dinner and they wined and dined him and then they slipped uh, a pill into his wine that caused him to get incredibly sick uh, and incredibly ill and he passed out. And then they, uh, while he was asleep, they chained him and they threw him in a dark room and they began the process of hauling him back down to the south to the Louisiana Bayou, where he was then put into a horrific slavery environment. I, I never realized just how horrible the slavery environment was until I'd read this book, uh, where he was beaten just beyond what we could even comprehend. And, uh, and in fact, he would preach the gospel to himself as the only hope that he had to ever get out again, uh, even through death, to get out of this slavery. And it's such a picture of how even today in the church in America, Spies come in, promising great things, promising clean things and successful things. And yet these spies, as they look so polished on the outside, so clean on the outside, so good on the outside, uh, they're actually spies that have been brought into the church of Jesus Christ to spy out your freedom so that they could lead you into bondage. And we see that that happened in Antioch, which was the missionary hub north of Israel in Damascus. It was the first, first place where they were really sent out to the nations. We see in chapter 11 and chapter 13 of the book of Acts. And so these men came from James, from the church in James, from a place that seemed that it would be a safe group of men coming. And as they came, it says that Peter, who would normally be eating with the Gentiles, he would see these men from Israel come up, kind of spying out what's going on in Antioch and how are these non-Jews being received into the church. And Peter feared these men, and so he'd quit eating with them, and he'd essentially go to the cool kids' table. He'd go and he'd withdraw, and he would leave the Gentiles, and he'd go across the room, and he'd sit with these Jewish Christians who had come up from Jerusalem. It was his practice to eat with the Gentiles normally, but because of fear and because he didn't want to seem too chummy with these new Gentile converts, uh, he, he played the part of a hypocrite. And he went over to the other side of the room and he ate with the Jewish legalistic Christians. Now this kind of flies in the face of everything that Peter had preached before this point. You see, Peter was one of the apostles that actually God used to open up the door of the gospel going to the non-Jews. You read about it in Acts chapter 10 where Peter's on the roof of Simon the Tanner 
And he falls into a, a vision, he falls into a trance, and he has a dream of the Lord sending down a sheet with all kinds of unclean animals in it. And the Lord says to Peter, rise and kill and eat. And Peter says, not so, Lord, for I've never touched anything unclean, and I won't do it now. And the Lord says, hey, what I've called clean, you shall not call unclean. And he tells the story that three times that, that vision happened to him right in a row. Sometimes we need those three times in a row. We're just not getting it. And the Lord is saying, hey, what I call clean, the Gentiles, don't you dare call them unclean. Don't call them lesser Christians because they're not Jews by nature, Jews by background or by heritage. And lo and behold, as the vision ends, there's a ding dong on the doorbell. And there at the door are some Gentile men from Caesarea sent by a man who was a Roman centurion named Cornelius. Just as Peter's having his vision of the sheet, Cornelius is having his vision from an angel telling him that a man is going to come and show him how Roman centurion, how he can be forgiven of his sins and know his creator in a personal, intimate way. And so Peter then went with these servants, went to Cornelius' household, as he preaches the gospel to them, he's not even done preaching the gospel when all of these Gentiles of Cornelius' household believe. As they're listening, they believe. And the Holy Spirit falls upon them. They're baptized with the Holy Spirit and power. And they begin speaking in tongues and prophesying while Peter's preaching his message. And Peter says, man, you know what? Normally, I'm not even supposed to eat with you guys. But I can tell that the spirit who fell upon us on the day of Pentecost has fallen upon you as you believe in Jesus. And now I'm realizing as a Jewish boy named Cephas, who's now called Peter, I'm now realizing that God has come and saved the Gentiles in the same manner, in the exact same way that he has saved us Jews. And it hasn't been by keeping the law of Moses. It's been by you guys trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so what's interesting is then Peter goes back and he tells the church this in Jerusalem and the church yells at him and says, it says those of the circumcision contended with him and said, you went into the uncircumcised and ate with them. You know, wow, what a missionary church there in Jerusalem. I can't believe you did that. That's disgusting. <laughs> and so Peter tells the story the vision, and then the ding-dong doorbell, and then they'll go on up to Cornelius' house, and the preaching, and the Holy Spirit falling, and the people being baptized with water, and being baptized with the Holy Spirit. And he says in Acts chapter 11, as he's telling the story to the Jewish brothers, he says, as I began to speak to them, the Holy Spirit fell upon them. This is Acts eleven fifteen. The Holy Spirit fell upon them as he fell upon us at the beginning. And then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. His conclusion is, if therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us, given the Gentiles the same gift as he gave the Jews, when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? Who was I that I would call something unclean that God had called clean? And when they heard these things, the Jewish brothers, Jewish Christians, became quiet or silent, and they glorified God. It was kind of like that slow clap. They kind of get, 
Woo! You know, they realized that the promise of the Old Testament of the Gentiles being saved had been fulfilled. And then they all said, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. And they were excited about it. And yet the excitement went away when then they heard, like, wait, those Cornelius in his home, they're not going to get circumcised? It doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem right, all right. They're not going to be circumcised. They're not going to. They're not going to, you know, observe the feasts and the and the different days and the observances. And oh, I just, I'm uneasy about that. Seems like they should have to. Ah. And there would always be a wrestle in the heart of the Jewish Christians, the Messianic Jews from Jerusalem, because they've got this heritage and they've got that Old Testament. They got the law. They got the temple. They got the prophets. They got the ordinance. They got all that stuff. And it's all good, but it, it was all to point to Jesus. And yet they just, they were kind of like the fiddler on the roof. You know, tradition, tradition, tradition. We've got we to keep our traditions going. And all those guys that are going to get saved in Europe and Macedonia and Asia, they, they got to do it too. I mean, doesn't it seem like they should have to? Maybe a little? That would always be a battle. There would always be that, that tension there. So much so that sometimes full-on spies would be sent up to just see how free these Gentiles are being. I mean, they're not circumcised, so they've got to just be crazy, right? So they would send up these Jews, and when Peter saw these Jewish Christians, he's like, man, I can't, I, I don't want them to go back and tell the, the brothers in Jerusalem that I'm not towing the line up here in Antioch. So I'm, just, I'm just afraid of what they're going to say and their looks, and man, they just look so religious and clean, and I just can't eat with the Gentiles today. I've just got to go eat with them, with the cool kids at the clean boy table. And it says in verse 13 of our text today that the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him. So that even Barnabas was carried away with the hypocrisy. There's a colorful word here in the Greek that's used to describe what, what Peter had done. And it's called hypocrisy. And it means to speak out from under. And it's a theatrical word that means to be wearing a mask in a drama or in a play, and as you're speaking, you speak through the mask, out from underneath the mask. What Peter was doing was he was being a hypocrite, speaking with a mask on. A synonym for hypocrisy would be insincerity. He was not being true. He was not being sincere to the Gentiles that were there eating at the tables. And he was not being true and sincere to the testimony that he already told those Jewish brothers about how God has also saved the Gentiles in the same manner as the Jews. This was hypocrisy. This was insincerity. This was something that is clearly wrong. And Paul says that Peter was to be blamed for it. Before this point, even in Galatians 2, we see that there was unity and everything that Paul and Peter did together, they had the right hand of fellowship in preaching the gospel. But Peter backslid for a moment. He had a momentary lapse of judgment, not walking according to his convictions. And he played the hypocrite. That was kind of the story of Peter's life all the way through. He would say that he was going to do something, and then he would do something else. Old foot in the mouth Peter, we call him. 
And here he just had another momentary lapse of judgment, lacking courage to stand for his conviction. And Peter would play the hypocrite because of fear. Now the problem with hypocrisy, as well as with other sins, is that it doesn't just affect you. And we often think that about our sins, don't we? Even sins that are done behind closed doors and in private, we think no one even knows about it. This is only going to affect me. But the truth is your sin will always affect other people. It will affect your family, your friends, your church, your community, and your world. And in this case, we have Peter's hypocrisy. Something that seems as simple as, I'm just not going to eat with you guys today. I'm just going to eat over here. No one will notice. And everybody noticed. So much so that all of the other Jews were like, I also am going to sit over here, not with you. And Peter, or Paul is surprised when he says, even Barnabas was carried away with the hypocrisy. Why would he be surprised that Barnabas was carried away? Because Barnabas is that good old boyfriend of everybody. His name means son of encouragement. He was the guy that when nobody liked Paul because he used to kill Christians and they left him out there in the dark, Barnabas was the one that pursued him and brought him into friendship and fellowship. He was the guy that when nobody liked John Mark because he abandoned everybody on the missionary journey, that Barnabas would go after John Mark and he would pursue him and friendship with him. So, so this hypocrisy, it stumbled and backslid other people around Peter, including the son of encouragement. Now, everyone in their personality types, even their giftings, we've got our own flaws And the flaw with the Barnabas personality is that they love people and they love to be loved by people. And so they'll do anything to be loved by everybody. And sometimes that means that there can be theological compromise. I'm very thankful that, you know, in our church we have a plurality of elders and we make our decisions together here at this church. Because I feel like I've got a Barnabas personality And one of my greatest struggles as a man is fearing man and their opinions. And I want to be liked by everyone. And I want to go up and just give a hug to everyone. And I hate it when people don't want to give hugs back. So there's the temptation to just kind of tell people what they want to hear so that they'll hug me and embrace me and we'll be friends. And so that's why within every group of pastors and theologians, man, you've got to have the Pauls that are going to call spades a spade. You've got to have the Barnabases that are going to be gracious to people. You've got to have, the, the, uh, you know, you've got to have those that um, speak the truth in love. And you've got to be the people that are going to say, let's extend grace to this brother. Well, in any case, we have Barnabas playing the hypocrite as well and going and sitting with his tray at the table of the Jews. Verse 14, but when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel... I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? So in this little cafeteria drama that's going on, you see that there is a not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. It's something that you need to know today is that the gospel of Jesus Christ as laid out in the holy pages of scripture is truth. Truth is not relative to your situation or wherever you might be. Truth goes beyond culture and time. 
Truth is true. And it must be straight as an arrow. And here we have that even in a cafeteria drama, that there's, there's some crooked truth going on, which is no truth at all. What was this hypocrisy? A simple going back and sitting at the table of the Jews? Paul says it's crookedness or perversion. It's a twisting of the gospel. Paul and Barnabas and the other, or Peter and Barnabas and the other Jews were not acting right. They were being perverts. Anytime you twist the truth, you're a pervert. So don't just call your neighbor that who has binoculars. You know, call anyone who's twisting the truth. Men use binoculars for various things. They might be hunting or, you know, okay. Peter might not have said anything, but his example and his actions spoke very clearly and plainly. He was telling the Gentiles, you know what, okay, observance of the law, it's got to be added to faith in Christ. Okay, Jesus has been good. We've had a fun little summer camp together with the Jesus stuff, but now it's time to, you know, start observing the law of Moses. That's what his actions were saying. That if men were to be saved, they've got to be circumcised. And the Gentiles couldn't help but draw that conclusion from Peter's action. And so a conversation begins in the public gathering between Paul and Peter. Really, it's just one way. Paul's the one that does the talking. And he says, I confronted Peter before them all. I confronted him to his face. And you know what, guys? The circle of the sin must be dealt with in the circle of the offense. And in this case, the offense had been done publicly, and so the public sin must have been dealt with. If you don't deal with it in front of the people, there will be confusion. William Barclay writes that a famous name can never justify an infamous action. Just because he was Peter, the rock that the church was being built on, doesn't mean that he's without correction when sinning publicly. And so what a scene this must have been. There they are at the church of Antioch's potluck. And the Gentiles have either been asked to leave or asked to sit on that side of the room. One way or another, there was a definite distinction and separation. Peter, who seems to be the honored guest at the feast, goes along with Barnabas and plays the fool and playing the hypocrite, hypocrite publicly. And so Paul, a younger apostle, stands up and publicly rebukes the man. Awkward? Causing big lumps in the throat? <laughs> yep. Can you imagine just watching this go down? Pretty exciting, I know. It doesn't matter if it's Peter the apostle or an angel sent from heaven, we must not hesitate to resist a man or an angel that brings a perverted gospel. It must have been hard for Paul, knowing that he was going up against Peter, kind of that father of the faith at the time. He called him in Galatians earlier, that they, he perceived they were pillars. Peter was a pillar, and Paul was going up to rebuke him. It must have been hard for Paul, knowing who he was, that he was the new guy 
the new guy who basically went out to the desert and learned about Jesus from Jesus in the desert. It must have been hard knowing that there were a lot of Jews there that would side with Peter. And as hard as it was, Paul did it. And he said, Peter, you're a Jew, right? Yet you don't follow the law of the Jews because the law was fulfilled in Jesus freeing you from the law so that you can live in freedom like a Gentile. Peter, you eat bacon now. Peter, you eat lobster now. Peter, you don't eat kosher diet. And yet now for some reason in front of these Jewish visitors, these certain men from James, now you act like you keep the law all the time. So why are you implying through your hypocrisy that the Gentiles must be pushed to live like Jews too. It's the very law that you said that you're free from. Verse 15 says, We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. So he says, Peter, you and me, we're Jews. We're not the Gentiles. But we know that even though we have a heritage of Judaism and the law and all of that, even we have come to know that we're not saved by keeping the law, but by simply faith in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what is this charade that you're doing? You know that that is not how we're justified. Guys, justify seems like a Christianese term, I know. But I hope it becomes a familiar word for you. It's a very biblical New Testament word. It's borrowed from the legal courtrooms. And it speaks of a judge slamming down the gavel in heaven and declaring the accused criminal murderer that he has been found innocent that he has been found to have always kept the law all the time. He never broke the law, and so he's acquitted with a favorable verdict. That's what to justify means. And so when Paul says, hey, we know that we were not declared righteous because we did a bunch of good works and kept the Ten Commandments, but rather we know that Jesus stood up in the courtroom of heaven and stood as our attorney and said, Father, this man, yes, indeed, he is sinful. He has sinned a thousand times over, but I have laid my life down as a sacrifice for his sin. And we have done a great exchange on his behalf, the life of me, the just, for the life of him, the unjust. And the judge of heaven says, that sacrifice is sufficient for me to appease me of my wrath and to satisfy my justice. And so I hit the, the, the gavel down and I say, then he is innocent. Rory Rogers is innocent. And if you're found in Jesus Christ, your name can be entered in there that you too are innocent. But what Paul says here to Peter three different times is that first of all, a man is not declared innocent by the works of the law. You try as hard as you want and you can try to keep all the ordinances of America and all the ordinances of Moses and you can look at the Ten Commandments of Moses and you can already find that you've already sinned at least ten different times in the law of 
of Moses. As you read the Ten Commandments, you know that you have had other gods before Jesus because you've given your affections and your passions to other people, places, or things rather than reverence to the Lord God Almighty. You know that you have committed adultery, as Jesus says, because you might never cross the street and slept in your neighbor's bed with his wife, but you've lusted after her in your heart, and it's the same thing. And you may have never plunged a bullet into a man's chest in murdering of him, but if you ever even had the kernel of hatred or anger without a cause in your heart for that man or woman, you've already murdered them. It's the same thing, Jesus says. And he goes through the Ten Commandments, and he sees that no one is found innocent, but all have been found guilty and in sin through the law of Moses, and now we see that we have a desperate need of a Savior, someone to come and stand in our place in the courtroom and say, I'm the one that has lived it for him. Let him go free. We are not justified and declared innocent by the works of the law, but Paul says, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And then he has this little phrase there in verse 16. And guys, I had to put a star in my notes next to verse 16 because it is huge. It's incredible because he says it three different times, why we're justified and how we're not justified. And in the middle of it all, he says, even we who have believed in Jesus Christ are justified not by the works of the law, but by faith. Even we, even we, and I hope today in Prineville, Oregon, that you can say, Rory, I'm with you in that. I get to be part of that even we part. Are you a part of the even we? Have you been justified in heaven before God? If you're resting on earthly confidence and your own personal works of righteousness, the bad news is you are condemned already. You're going to hell. But if you would lay aside your works of righteousness and cling to the works of Jesus and his righteousness, you can say, even we, even me, I am justified by Jesus. He says it again a second time, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Yes to faith in Christ, no to works of the law. And number three, the third time, and by works of the law no flesh will be justified. He kind of reverses it. Justified by faith, not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Three times. Three times a charm, right? And so if you're trying to be declared innocent before God and justified and righteousified, if you're trying to do it by your works and because you're a Boy Scout and you were all American and you were just, man, you're so clean and polished and you shower every day, sometimes two times a day, sometimes you even brush your teeth three times a day, and man, you just, woo, ah, man, you pop, you're clean, you look good. Truth is, is on the inside of your heart, you're, you're like dead men's bones inside of a polished tomb. And you're condemned already. But if you would come to Jesus and say, even me, Lord, that I might be declared innocent, slam the gavel down in heaven and say, my name, you're innocent. Martin Luther says, justification is good news. Such good news, he calls it the principal doctrine. And he said, it is most necessary, therefore, that we should know this article well that we should teach it to others and beat it into their heads continually. You guys, at this church, justification by grace through faith, not of works, will be beat into your head here. Don't ever let it get old. Paul had to beat it into Peter's head 
three times in a sentence as he's there confronting him in public. Peter, don't you remember we're not justified by being good Jews. We're justified by Jesus being a good Jew and putting your faith in his goodness. Three times, Peter, you've got to remember this. The Jews that had crept in to spy out the freedom preached a religion that men would be justified by human efforts. And you know what? This is the religion of men in our culture today. Your neighbors, your coworkers, maybe even you in this room. It's a religion of you being made right before God by your human effort. If there's any religion in men today, that's the one in the Prineville community. Listening to a podcast, a military podcast, I was listening to Colonel Hal Moore. Uh, he's known famous through uh, the We Were Soldiers movie, you know, with uh, Mel Gibson. And in the movie, he's there and he's praying with his kids and he's, he's a Catholic, you know, and so he's praying and he's doing the crossing himself and stuff. And then, you know, you got the cute little girl that says, why are we praying like you? Mama's a Methodist. Why don't we pray like the Methodists, you know? And, and so there's this nice little line about, oh, just pray however you want to pray, whatever. But as you listen to Hal Moore's testimony, as he's an old man, he says, you know what? I just try to be a good person. And by the end of the life, I hope that all of my good works outweigh my bad and still when I stand before God he'll let me into his kingdom because I was more good than I was bad it's the same religion of the Judaizers that's condemned here in Galatians chapter 2 a religion of man made human based righteousness apart from Jesus Christ and it will take those people to hell it will take you to hell Instead, you've got to become like a little child and realize, I've done bad. <laughs> I've messed up. I've rebelled. I've done it my way instead of his way. I've done what I think is right and what makes sense in my mind rather than what he clearly says is right in his word. And Lord, I've got to humble myself before you and say, I really screwed up. Can you fix this? And he'll say, I've done it already. Trying to do it on your own is like going to the county fair and they've got that little machine that you hit it with a hammer and the little thing, bing, you know, goes up high and hits the bell. And you know all you guys and all your mind, uh, uh, and it's, you know. And then Troy Kosky walks up from behind you. Why don't you let me do this? Blows out the top, flies over, punctures the bouncy house. A lot of kids get hurt. I could never do it. I could never measure up. I had to have someone come and do it in my place. It was Jesus Christ. And he's more than sufficient. We're justified by our faith in his grace. Through our faith in his great, it, grace. It's not an intellectual observance. It's not faith in faith. It's literally translated here, faith into Jesus Christ. We are immersing ourselves into him and all that he has done. I was reminded of a song written by U2, written by Bono. And I remember back in about 2000, my dad had had a stroke and he was at the hospital here in Bend. And, and I had to make a trip down to Lakeview to get his things. And so I uh, 
bought a CD for the trip, and I bought U2's Beautiful Day CD. It's a great album, and there's a song on it called Grace. And it's really profound, and it, it seems pretty gospel-centered. And listen to some of the lyrics by Bono about grace. Grace, she takes the blame. She covers the shame, removes the stain. It could be her name. Grace, it's the name for a girl, but it's also a thought that changed the world. She travels outside of karma. And then it's interesting, he repeats that lyric. She travels outside of karma. We've been learning about karma as we've gone to Nepal and to Asia and we're learning about Buddhism and karma and, and how people just strive and labor to do good and we've just got to do stuff and implement things. We've got to spin prayer bells and make flags and make kites and make little wheel paddles that twirl and twirl and, and maybe build up our karma in, karma in the water and we just got to build up our karma. And, oh no, and if I do something, it's bad karma. And it goes back and it's just so works-based and these people are just pulling their hair out, trying to measure up and trying to just do something good. But they can't, and they know they can't. Enter in grace. It travels outside of karma. It's not works-based. It's based upon Jesus' perfection. Grace has wonderfully been acronymed God's riches at Christ's expense. The riches of God at Christ's expense. As we close down, verses 20 and 21. Often this is a very quoted passage, and I quote it and love it, and it was in this time studying through that I realized that this wonderful quote, quotable quote, is all still part of the conversation between Paul and Peter where Paul is, in a sense, rebuking Peter for hypocrisy and correcting Peter and encouraging Peter. And in this big confrontation in the cafeteria, it's when Paul says it, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. But Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There in the heated public rebuke, Paul realizes that it was only at the cross that a great exchange took place where he gave Jesus his old try-to-be-right-before-God-by-the-law life. And Saul of Tarsus was essentially crucified there at Mount Calvary. At the same time, Jesus gave his perfect obedience from birth through childhood, through adolescence, through preteen and teeny bopper, all the way up through young man and earthly ministry as a Galilean carpenter. Loving men, loving God, serving his brothers to the end. The life of Jesus has now been put upon Paul. 
says, I was crucified there. Just as Peter will say in a later epistle, Christ suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. Jesus was crucified at the cross, and at the same time, you were crucified on the cross if you're found in Christ today. Rory was crucified on the cross. Dean was crucified on the cross. Easy was crucified on the cross. You can enter your name in there if that's you. You're dead. Your old man is dead. And Paul would preach it in Romans 6, which is like a companion passage, a pocket passage. Romans chapter 6, where it says that you need to reckon your old man dead now. Consider it dead. Stop letting him rule. Stop it. He's dead. He's got no power anymore. He's been made powerless. He hasn't been annihilated yet. That old man, that old you, you know who he was. Your pre-Christ guy. But he's been made powerless. And you need to stop letting him rule. And you need to reckon him dead. And you need to reckon that there's a new man. A new Rory. A new Stephanie, a new Aaron, a new Tim. You can enter your name in there. And I say these names because I know that this has happened in these people's lives. There's a new you. Paul would say in Colossians that you need to take off every day. You've got to take off the old you, like a garment. Put off the old man and all of his sin. And put on the new man. who's made righteous in Jesus. You've got to reckon that there's, I'm reckoning right now that that's off and there's a new one on. What about later on that evening when the old guy tries to kind of put itself back on you? You've got to reckon it off again. Every day, every moment of every... You're dead. You're dead. I've been crucified with Christ. The old flesh, crucified. Nevertheless, I'm alive. Because Jesus didn't stay dead on that cross. He rose. And we have risen as well. New life in Jesus Christ. And he says, the life that I'm now living, I live it not by worldly confidence, not by worldly hope, but I live it by faith in the Son of God. Not faith in faith, not George Michael, you gotta have faith, the faith, the faith, I gotta have faith and faith, the faith. It's not having faith and faith and faith. It's having faith in Jesus because the faith is only good as the thing that you're putting it in. You can pretend that you got yourself a lifesaver as you're drowning in the ocean as much as you want. I'm having faith in there's nothing. You know, you got to put your faith in that thing you're actually clinging to. We are clinging to the Lord Jesus. The life that I now live, I live by faith. So that when that temptation comes, I trust that, remember how the Lord said that is wrong? Now that is against him. Well, I trust that he, but it feels so good. It tastes so good. It must be right. If it's so wrong, how can it be right? Whatever. Uh, well, whatever. The Lord knows, and he said it's wrong. So I trust you, Lord. And Lord, I'm just going to confess right now, it's trying to creep back up on my leg and clothe me in it again. And so, Lord, I bow my knee to you right now, and I say, Lord, it's dead. I reckon it dead. There's a new Rory. He's alive in Christ Jesus. The life that I live, I live by faith in the Son of God. And as we're closing... To prove we're closing, worship team, come on up. You guys are trying to have faith that we're actually closing, but I'm going to give you something to put your faith in today. Notice the two great verbs 
describing the one in whom Paul has put his faith. Two great verbs. First of all, this guy loved Paul. I mean, can you imagine? There he is in the cafeteria. He's standing up to Peter. He's saying, what are you doing, man? You're compromising the gospel. If this doesn't go right today, the rest of history is doomed. We are church fathers here, man. You can't do this. You're to be blamed right now. This is a false gospel. You're perverting it in front of all of these men. And don't you remember, man, we are dead. Peter, you are dead, and I am dead. We've been crucified with Christ. We live by faith now, not by the law again. Man, don't you remember, Peter, the life that we now live? We live by faith in Jesus. Remember Jesus, Peter? You, know, you knew him. You walked with him. I didn't even walk with him. But even I know that he loved me. He loved me. Peter, you know he loves you. Do you know here today that he loves you? I don't know if we say that enough at this church. He loves me. I just was overwhelmed with that this morning, thinking of you guys. I know there's some of you that you didn't have dads. You had lousy moms. You have no friends. Even the friends you have now, man, they're lame. I'm lame. I don't even know if I love you. But there's someone who loves you. He loves you. And the second great verb, he gave his life for you. Man, maybe on a good day, a good man will die for a good man. Maybe. But Christ Jesus died for me while I was still a sinner at war with him. That's love right there. He loved me and gave himself for me. And because he loves me and gave himself for me, the last verse of our chapter, I do not set aside the grace of God. Because of such a wonderful message of hope and love and grace, that's not without its confrontation, it's not a pansy message. It's truth, and it will stand up as truth, and it will get in anyone's faces that try to pervert it. But it is a message of truth and grace and love and hope and peace with God. And because of that, I will say with Paul today that I will not set aside the grace of God. I will not count the grace of God as something that's worthless or rubbish or something that we can take or leave, whatever. It doesn't really matter. And that's what most, most pastors do today. It's what most Christian counselors do today. It's what most religions do today. It's what the guys who knock on your door will tell you. I'll set aside the grace of God for what I can do in my best day of polished behavior. Not me. If righteousness came through my polished behavior, then Jesus died in vain. What that means is, if I could have made it on my own, then why in the heck would the Son of God have to have left his throne of glory and dwelt in flesh and lived here in this painful, trashy world for 33 years, going through all the junk of mankind, including the own behavior and murder of his own creation, if you could just make it on your own? Maybe you can't make it on your own. Maybe you never could. 
on your best day you can. And even if you live a whole day of (laughs) you prideful, arrogant person, to think that through your good deeds you can stand before the righteous God of the universe and tell him that he owes you eternal life. You just lost it all right there. If I could do it, Jesus wouldn't have had to die. But the historical fact of this world that is one of the most powerful facts that's ever been known on every continent is that he did die for you because he loved you and he gave his life for you. And as we close in worship today, we're going to go to communion. It's in communion that we remember what Jesus did for us. We remember that he willingly laid down his life. He laid down his body. He laid down his wrists. He gave his back to the Roman scourge. He gave his brow to the crown of thorns. He willingly gave himself, and his body became the sponge that absorbed the wrath against your sin. So we're going to come forward during this song, and we're going to get the cracker. And when we go back to our seat, we're going to sit there and we're going to hold the cracker and we're going to squeeze the cracker a little bit. We're going to realize, man, this cracker had been broken. This cracker, man, when I crunch it in my mouth, it's like it's a remembrance of the wrath of God crushing Jesus' body. He did it so that I could be saved. And when I take the cup, that liquid it goes in, I'm taking into myself, I'm bringing into me what Jesus has done. I'm intimately associating myself with what he has done when his warm, life-filled blood poured from his veins. And as the scriptures tell us, his blood truly atones for our sins and brings forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And it was with his precious blood, Peter and Paul both tell us, that he purchased us from the auction block of slavery into the freedom of new life in Jesus. Are you in Jesus today? Are you saved today? Are you born again? Is it something that you can say, I have been crucified with Christ? Look at your life, honestly. Here's my life. Does it appear to have been crucified with Jesus? Or is that old man still going strong? Come to Jesus today by faith. And in faith, the exchange will take place You will go on the cross and Jesus' life will be placed on you. Come to the table today and maybe for you it's the first time ever where you'll come to the table, you'll take the elements of communion back, you'll ponder them, you'll hold them, you'll chew it, you'll drink it, you remember what he's done to save you from your sins and by faith you'll receive it You'll receive him into yourselves and you will be placed into him. Let's move to communion during this last song. Come forward as you're ready.
take the elements. If you want to kneel up here in the front, there's plenty of room for you to just kneel in humility before the Lord as you would lay down your righteousness and all that you've tried to accomplish. And just in humility, you might just take a knee up here and just just say, Lord, I I lay that all down. And I just come humbly to the cross. There's There's an old hymn that says, nothing in my hands I bring, but to the cross I cling. And maybe today you would just take a knee up front here and cling to the cross of Jesus as you partake of communion. Let's close together. You partake in your own time during this last song.